Thanks for taking some time to listen to this message on the Elevate Church podcast. We believe that God will speak to you wherever you are. Now, let's prepare our hearts and hear what God has for us today. So let's get reintroduced. If you weren't here, if you weren't here last week, um, reintroduced, reacquainted with this couple, Ruth and Boaz, that we're looking at in the book of Ruth, which is the eighth book in the Bible, uh, in, starting in your Old Testament. But they are this incredible picture of Jesus and what the Bible says, you know, that the, he's the bridegroom of the church. And that's really Boaz and Ruth who shows us what it's like to be the bride in this mutual relationship of character. Because that's really kind of our theme word in this, this series. It's all about, all about character. Now, while I'm zeroing in on the guys, ladies, you don't get a hall pass. I want you to know that, all right? This is, is equally for you as well. I just want you to understand uh, through the lens of, of Boaz how this is going to apply to your life as well. So let's get introduced. Uh, Ruth chapter 2 verse 1 says this. I'm going to cover a little bit of, of ground from last week, but it says, Now Naomi, who is Ruth's mother-in-law, had a relative of her husband's. And listen to what it says next. He was a worthy man. Somebody say worthy man. I believe in the NIV translation, it might say a, a noble man or a man of noble character. We could also call him a wingman because a worthy man is a wingman. It says a worthy man from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, what I did this week is I looked up the term wingman in the Urban Dictionary. I shouldn't have done that. I am a worse person for having done that. Um, but I want to tell you what the definition is. I just kind of wanted to to uh, reaffirm what I already assumed was the romantic and relational pulse of our, country, of our culture. And this is what it said was a wingman. It said it's when two guys go into a bar or a nightclub. The wingman is the guy, and this broke my heart to read it, that it's even in a dictionary. It says who goes and talks to the ugly girls. That's what it said. So that he can divert their attention and taking time away from his friend who wants to go and pursue the the pretty girls. And it says once that he, you know, kind of hooks up with a pretty girl, then he ditches the other girls and walks off with the pretty girls. And that was the Urban Dictionary's definition of a wingman. Now, compared to what the Bible says about a real wingman, a worthy man, we couldn't be further from the heart of God, could we not? Like, like I, I think the way that we view and treat women in our society, in our culture, something has to change. I heard a a friend of mine, a pastor friend, you guys have met him before. He's been here and one of our overseers. And he was talking about, about marriage with one of his staff members who was a newlywed. So like two years into it. How many of you are, are, are newlyweds, maybe two years or less into a marriage? All right, a couple of you. Um, they were like two years into it. And he was asking her, hey, when you stood at the altar and you said for better or for worse, like what has surprised you as being better and what has surprised you as far as what has been worse? And she thought about it for a minute and she said, well, honestly, I married someone who is an anomaly. Like he is way better of a person than me. And I can relate to that, you know, because I did, a lot of you guys did, like I married way above my pay grade. And so I understand that. She said this though, but for the last two years since they've been married, every morning she wakes up and there's toothpaste ready for her on her toothbrush. Don't awe that. Like, that's weird. Right? Don't do that. That's like, it's like, okay, weird flex, but whatever, right? He's kind of like, I'm like, okay. And she said, and every morning that I'd come downstairs, I'd, I'd come down to a warm cup of coffee waiting for me. 
and next to it, a thermos of like to-go coffee ready to go to work. And I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm feeling nervous. Like, man, who is this guy? And she said that every day he calls her at 7.15 at work to pray for her over the phone. Now guys are getting real tense, right? <laughs> to bless her day. And I'm thinking, is this some sort of joke? Like, what's, what's going on? She says he gets up at 4.30 every morning to go to the gym. Of course he does, right? Of course. <laughs> you know, the only time I get, up at, I get up at 4.30, but it's like the fourth time to go to the bathroom because I got a 47-year-old prostate. Another, another message <laughs> for another time. Too much information. And she said, she said this, that one day she was having a, a bad day at work. I think she worked in healthcare, long hours, and she came home, and he had known that she had a bad day, and he had already drawn a bath for her. He'd already put some candles in the bathroom, put a glass of wine, you know, next to it, and said, hey, honey, when you get home, we don't have to talk at all. I just want you to go upstairs and rest, and we can talk later. And the only thing going through my mind is my wife can never hear about this, ever. <laughs> Come on, guys, are you with me? Like, Ever. Because I'm thinking if I was to try to retroactively, after 24 years, put toothpaste on my wife's toothbrush in the morning, she'd get up and be like, what's wrong? Is my breath bad? Or, you know, what's going on? I'd be like, no, it's, it's Seth. He was telling me about this guy. He's a, he's a Boaz. He's a wingman. He's like, a, I, I don't know, nothing. Just forget it. I'm going to be in the den yelling at the kids not being awesome, right? That's what I would say. And, and I say that to stir up a little bit of tension in the room so we can sit under that because that type of behavior is rare. Is it not? Sad, but it's, it's, it's rare. And by the way, please don't come up to me after this message and tell me what your awesome husband does. I already feel like garbage, so just keep that to yourself. But what the Bible says and Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 to us is that, guys, we're to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And we're willing to lay down our, our lives for them. And so Paul knew what, what God knows is that we as men, we're never probably going to come close to, to doing that for our wives like Christ did for the church. But that doesn't mean that's not the standard. Are you with me? It doesn't mean that that's not what we, we strive to do. And I think sometimes in the church, even in the American church, is we try to take verses like that, love your wife like Christ loved the church and was willing to lay his life down for him. And we try to, try to you know, find a theologian or a commentator who would tell us, well, that's not really, really what, what it meant, that this is what, what they mean in order to kind of have a goal that's more attainable or doable or, or reachable to lower that standard so we don't feel as bad you know, about ourselves. But can I tell you why God will never move that standard? Why that standard is in place and he meant what he said when he called us to lay our lives down for our wives as Christ laid his life down for the church is because we should not call guys like that an anomaly. You know what we should call them? Christians. We should call them Christ followers. We should call them men of, of God. And listen, I'm not speaking at you today, guys. I am one of you. Like, I, I don't do this kind of stuff. I don't do like stuff like that guy did for his wife, for, for my wife, but I'm also not afraid of these types of talks. Because I know who I am in Christ. I know my identity is in him. I know the grace and the mercy that I've been given. So these types of talks, they don't scare me. What they do is challenge me to get better. And that's really the goal. Amen? That's the goal. Because God, just, God would never lead us to a place that, that he doesn't want to bless us. And he doesn't want us to be our best. This is the best way for us to live. In fact, another reason he won't lower the standard... You know that, that Paul said about giving our lives, you know, laying down our lives for our wives is because we are going to get that so messed up all the time 
that we're going to fail, that the only posture that we're going to be able to take as Christ followers is, God, help me again today. God, I can't do this without you. God, forgive me. God, God, I, I fell short again today. Would you give me another shot? And I say that because Jesus teaches us in Luke 7, 47, that, that those who, who forgive and understand forgiveness, they love well. So when we get the fact that we've been forgiven and the grace and the mercy that we have, like when we fall short of that standard, we can still come back to the mercy of Christ and we can still learn how to love well. I'll say it this way. Show me a guy who does not understand the mercy and the grace that God gives to him every single day. And I'll show you a guy who is ultimately unkind to his wife. You show me somebody who doesn't understand the fact that every single day we're giving, you know, this blessing of mercy and grace from God. I'll show you somebody who is, who is ultimately unkind to, to people because when you don't understand the mercy and the grace you've been given, uh, what ends up happening is, is you start to think that people owe you things. That you're entitled to, to this or that or that she owes you things or that the world owes you things or that people owe you things. You begin to believe that, but man, you start to realize that his mercies are new for us every single day. Then all we can do is drop to a humble knee and say, God, I did not meet that standard again today, but I want to do better. And people who are aware of that kind of mercy and grace in their, their lives, they know how to love well. And so that's our standard. And so that's what they said Boaz is. Boaz is a worthy man, full of character. And it goes on to say that he went out to the field. Uh, again, we covered this last week, so you can go back and listen to it if you like. But I'll just give you a little Cliff Notes version. He goes out to the field, and he sees this girl working in the field, Ruth. And he's like, hey, who's that? And he calls his overseer, Frank, over, and he says, hey, like, who's that girl? And Frank's like, oh, well, that's, that's Ruth. She came here in the morning and she started to, to pick up the scraps behind all the harvest reapers and, and what was left over. She asked if she could glean in the field and, and we told her, yeah, and she's been working hard from morning until now is what he says. Only exception was a short break of rest in the afternoon. And so Boaz is like, man, I like this girl. Like she's a, she's a hard worker. And he says, yeah, and not only that, she's from your clan. Like she came with Naomi. You remember all the tragedy that happened when Naomi, he's like, yeah. He's like, well, she left her country and her people and came out here a foreigner in this land because she's loyal to her. And Boaz is thinking, oh, I really like this girl. And so he dismisses Frank and says, okay, you know, hey, Ruth, like, don't leave my field. That's what he tells her. Don't leave my field. You work here. You glean from behind the, the reapers. You, you stay with the women and I'll, I'll let want my field to provide for you. That's what he's saying. Let my field be the field that provides for you and for Naomi. And so, guys, there are a few things that wingmen do, that worthy men do. Three quick things I see in that. Number one is this. We're providers. Write that down. We're providers. That's the goal. That's the standard. Is it not that that's what we were hardwired to do from the beginning? Like when God created us in the garden, he created us as providers, like that's what we were born to do effortlessly until sin got involved and destructive things got involved in the world, right? And that, then the Bible said, now it's through thorns and thistles that you're going to be able to provide. It's going to be work, but we've been called to be providers. And then he, he tells Ruth this, he says, hey, I've told you, uh, I've told my men not to touch you. They're not gonna lay a hand on you, which was a big deal back then because it was commonplace for the, for the guys to take advantage of these foreign women who are not protected. So he's gonna be there her protector, write that down. So he wants to be their provider and he wants to be their protector. And that's what real men do, by the way. 
real men, wing men, like our, our providers and protectors. And then he says this, I want you to drink from my water jug. Remember last week you said, hey, not the Dasani girl, the Fiji. You get the Fiji, you get the good stuff. You drink out of my jug. And for her to bypass the whole class system and go straight to the boss's water would have been a huge deal during this, this time. He was putting his reputation on the line. He was putting his business on the line, his employees on the line. He was putting his man card on the line when he told his employees, hey, don't touch her. Because again, that would have been commonplace. But how many of you know, like when you're a godly man, you don't care about your, your man card as much as you do your God card. And can I tell you something? When your God card and your man card are conflicting in life, come on, somebody, you always choose character. You choose character. You do the right thing. When what's right and what's advantageous collide, you do the, the right thing, the thing that is, that is full of character. And so look at her response to how he takes care of her and provides for her and wants to protect her and, and wants to promote her because that's the third P. He's like, I'm going to take care of you. You by, by, bypass all that other water. I'm going to promote you to a different place. And guys, we are to be our wives' greatest cheerleaders. In fact, that's what also what Ephesians tells us. We are to present our spouses, our, our bride to Christ without spot, without stain, without blemish, without wrinkle. Like we're to promote them. And so what does she do in verse 10? This incredible behavior that she sees in character from Boaz, it says this, at that, she bowed down with her face to the ground and asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes? Why have you noticed me, a foreigner? And Boaz says, here's why. And I'm just paraphrasing. I told you all about, I've been told all about what you did for your mother-in-law. Since the death of, of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your own homeland, that which you, you know, was secure for you, you left those people and you came here to a group of people you didn't know. In other words, I've heard about your character and I've heard about your loyalty. I've heard about your courage. And ladies, again, let me just tell you, you know what hot is? Character. Character's hot. Courage, loyalty, honor. All those things that make up that word kindness has said that we learned last, last week. He says all that. I've, and I've seen even your work ethic in the field, Ruth. And then Boaz, all he can do is speak this blessing over her. And he prays this in verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. And then here it is, our wingman terminology, under whose what? Say it out loud. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And that word wings is the word kanap. Say, say kanap. Kanap is the, the Hebrew word is where we get the word canopy from. So he's literally talking about a canopy, a covering, a protection. How many of you know that in a desert place, a hot place, you know, where there's no AC, do you know what a, a little oasis, a canopy can provide for people? A place of refreshment, a place of provision, a place where you can relax, a place where you can be protected from the elements. That's what he's saying. Hey, I'm praying that God will do that for you. Praying that God will give you that canopy, be that the wings, that covering over your life. But what we didn't know at the time is that God's saying, hey, Boaz, you're actually going to do that for her. Uh, and that's what's really interesting is he's praying for that in her life. And now we're going to read something really interesting because we're going to jump now to chapter 3 of this book. Uh, that was just the setup. I'm ready to preach now. You guys ready? You're like, wait a second. Wait, how long are we going to be here? Not that long couple hours. So in chapter three, she goes and finds him one night in a strange way. 
And this is, this is super interesting. She's going to go, hey, Boaz, you know that, that prayer that you prayed? You said Jehovah, you know, be your protector, your provider, all that kind of stuff. Like, that's great. I understand that. And I want God to be that for me. And I know that that's the kind of character he has. And she's going to say, hey, but I, wouldn't it be so cool if, if you could be the tangible expression of that in my life? Like, would you be that one that shows me that love and that, like, someone I could touch and feel and hug and do life with and communicate with and have a relationship? She's literally going to go and ask him to be that kind of covering, that canap to her here on this, this earth. So in Ruth chapter 3, verse 6, Ruth had told Naomi that she met Boaz out in the field. And Naomi, like, they start talking about, like, oh, girlfriend, you best go find him. Like, I actually don't have a clue what they were talking about uh, or how they said it. But she basically said this, hey, he's on the threshing floor, and you need to go get him. Like, you need to go, you need to go tell him that he is our, our family redeemer. So you need to, like, you know, take a shower, anoint yourself with oil, you know, whatever you girls do to look pretty, you know, get your fake eyelashes on, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know what, you, some of you guys do that too. You should stop, by the way. And she says, you need to go and, and approach him on this threshing floor. So verse 6, here we go. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Ruth came in softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. That's weird, right? It says, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over. I was like, yeah, I bet he was. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Then here it is. Please don't miss this terminology again. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer a family redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. What that was, was the person had responsibility. If someone died in a family, they would take on the, the, the ability to protect, to cover, to go to fight for the family on their behalf. And it was usually the person who is, who is next in line, kind of their closest relative. And Boaz wasn't that. You can read a little bit further and, and discover that he's still gonna be their, their redeemer. But she's literally saying, hey, that prayer that you spoke over me, that blessing, you prayed for God to be my, my Jehovah Jireh, my, my provider. I'm now asking you to marry me. That's literally what she's doing by uncovering his feet. Saying, I'm asking you to be my kinsman redeemer, to be the one that provides, the one that protects, the one that, that promotes, to bring help to me and Naomi, right? Because you're our kinsman redeemer. Literally, she's getting on her knees and asking him, hey, will you be my wingman? Will you be my wingman? Will you marry me? So ladies, it's all right for you to ask, ask him. Say, hey, you know, if you like it, put a ring on it. Let's go, right? That's literally what she's saying. Like, will you be my husband? It says this in verse nine, spread your wings over your servant. I need you to be my canopy. I need you to be my, my covering in the flesh. And guys, this is our great high calling. This is what God has called us to do, that by your, your grace, God, that we would be that, to our wives, not perfect, not get it right all the time. So let me free you up for a second. Not that we're always gonna to, to do our, our best, but God, by your grace, may I be Jesus with skin on to my spouse. May I be Jesus with skin on to my wife or to my future wife. This is what a worthy man does. Are you with me? 
I know it's quiet in here. I didn't say this was going to be an easy teaching. But this is what God's called us to be. To say, I want to be your protector. I want to be your provider. I want to be your promoter in the flesh. I want to be the earthly, tangible expression of God's love to you. That he can bless you through my life. And so after she said that, Boaz Boaz said this in verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness. Remember that word from last week, has said. This, this loyalty, this character, this humility all wrapped in one. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. See, Boaz was a lot older than Ruth. He was probably more of Naomi's age. And he's like, hey, you could have easily come here. And instead of going after character, you could have chased after, you know, chiseled abs and glutes. That's what my wife did. He said, you could have done all that. But instead, what did you do? You follow God's order. For me to be the, the redeemer, that's what he's saying. He says, you haven't gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So verse 11, now my daughter. And at this point, Ruth's kind of like, hey, if you're going to be my husband, you got to stop calling me daughter. Because that's a little weird. That's a little, just throwing that out there. Uh, he says, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for my fellow townsmen. Know that you are a what? A worthy. Chapter 2, verse 1, we read that Boaz was a worthy Man, chapter 3, verse 11, here we see that Ruth is a worthy woman. And again, I'll say this over and over in this, this series. You want to uncomplicate something that is inherently complicated? Just be a person of character. Just be a worthy man. Just be a, a worthy woman. I mean, that's, that's a foundation. That's where it starts. But here's what we got to see. We got to talk about this. Because in between chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 11... There's this really interesting moment, right? We read it where Ruth approaches Boaz on the threshing floor and uncovers his his feet. And I want to talk to us about the threshing floor for just a moment and how it relates to marriage. So let me give you a little bit of uh, historical information on what a threshing floor is. Of course, we have different technology today, so it made these old kind of threshing floors irrelevant. Uh, But what it was, was it was this large circle about... 30 to maybe 40 uh, feet in diameter, radius. I don't know. You mathletes can tell me later how to do circle math. I don't really know. Uh, He's got it so wrong. Uh, Whatever. It's just this large circle. All right. It's a big flipping circle. and And it's hard. It's the equivalent of our pavement. And so what would happen, it was hard to bear the weight of, of the cattle and usually ox because the heavier, the better. And they were some of the bigger kinds of cattle that they used, the bigger herd cattle. And so they take this large circle and they would take this barley that they were harvesting, right? That's what Ruth's doing out in the field. That's what she's gleaning from behind these, these workers out in the field. And they take this barley they're harvesting and they throw it into this big threshing floor. And what would happen is now the, the cattle would just walk around it. For hours and hours and hours. And what a pile would start out about this high or so, however high it was, would ultimately get down lower and lower. Why? Because the weight of the cattle, right? The weight of the oxen would crush it and would press it down. And the thing about the, the wheat and the grain, the, the, the heads of it, they had the, the grain part, which was the part that you wanted, the part of substance, And it also had the husk or the tares, it's called, or the chaff as a part of it. And so as these ox are like walking around all this this grain on the threshing floor, it was crushing these heads and it was separating the grain from the chaff. Are you with me? 
And so once they thought they had sufficiently crushed everything and started to separate the grain from the chaff, they would take the winnowing forks, the winnowing fork, and they would just kind of toss it up into the air over and over, toss it up into the air for hours and hours and hours. And the heavier stuff that you wanted to keep, the grain, the pure stuff, the part, the part that was redeemable, the part that was for food would fall to the ground because it's heavier and the chaff would what? It would blow away because it was lighter. And ultimately you're left with the best, the purest kind of grain. I was reading one commentator and he said that the ultimate purpose of the threshing floor was one word, purity. It was to get to the purest grain possible. And I think that what they did back then um, agriculturally is so interesting when it comes to our marriage. And why Ruth met him there at the threshing floor is because every person that is married or that will be married, you need to understand this. When you go to the altar to get married, to say, I do, all of us, we are equal parts Grain and chaff, are we not? We are equal parts, all the the good stuff and the pure stuff that we want to get out of it and equal parts, all the stuff that needs to get broken off of us. The baggage, the tears, the irredeemable parts of of our lives. Is that not true? And it doesn't matter how well you know that person when you get married, when you say I do to them, because aren't we always learning something new, it seems like, about our spouses every single, every single day sometimes, every single year for sure, that we go through these, these seasons of life and it keeps teaching you more and more about who they are because life has this incredible way of revealing more and more of the chaff that's in our lives. Because when you're dating, come on, how many of you know you're trying to hide the chaff? Right? You do your best to hide the chaff and you do your best to show them the grain. Here's the noble parts of me. Here's the Facebook parts of me, the Instagram parts of my life, right? The parts that we want you to see and believe the best about us, but we're really good at hiding the chaff. All the parts about us that, that we don't want you to see. And then we get married, right? And the, we're professionals at, at hiding this. But when we go to the altar of our, our marriage, what we're really doing is going to a threshing floor. In life. And by the way, there's a lot of different kinds of threshing floors. There's threshing seasons in our life. I would submit that we came out of a two year, somewhat still in it, a two year threshing season, are we not? Have we been threshed in the last couple years? There's parts of our lives that we didn't need that are broken off of us in, in order to get to the purest form, the purest grain of our life. While that's true, I have yet to find a threshing floor as powerful, stay with me, as marriage. I've yet to find a threshing floor that does what it does to a person to separate the real me from the fake me like marriage and like relationships. Because doesn't it have a way of us like getting to the, 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 the real you, the real me in life? I heard one commentator say that um, it wasn't just, it was, it was the real food, separating the real food from the fake food, not from, you know, bad food or as good food from the fake food. And so there's nothing else like marriage that I have discovered that separates the real Colby from the fake Colby, the real food from the, the fake food, the, the good stuff from the stuff that there are no redeemable qualities from because all of us have this Romans 7, Paul says, kind of battle going on inside of our lives between our sin nature and our flesh nature. 
We're always constantly in, in battle and, and, and they're trying to break away some of these, these irredeemable qualities and chaff off of our lives. And here's why marriage is so beautiful is because it puts a weight on us. It puts a pressure on us to get the real you sorted from the fake you. And guess what? Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it hurts. Like I, if wheat had feelings, and I'm not saying wheat has feelings, right? Because I'm weird, I'm not that weird. But if it had feelings... I can't imagine that being crushed over and over by oxen would feel good. So sometimes this this process to be separated, the, the real from the fake, it hurts. It doesn't feel good. But can I tell you something? God will never bless the fake you. I heard somebody say, God cannot bless the fake you. And I have a problem, you know, with, with saying God cannot do anything because he can do whatever. But God, I would say, you know, will not bless the fake you. And there's this institution that he's put into place called marriage that God sees to it that you and I will go through times of testing and tribulations and troubles together. And it doesn't matter how much work you do on the front end. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter how much you vet that person. It doesn't matter how much marriage counseling, premarital stuff you go through and you need to do all of that. All of that you need to do. But how many of you know life just has a way sometimes of, of bringing pressure and challenges, things that you would have never seen when you said, I do at the altar. Like you didn't know when you said, I do at the altar, you know, and you said those beautiful vows that the first three pregnancies were gonna end in miscarriage. And do you know what that does to a relationship? You didn't, you didn't know when you said, I do at the altar that um, you were gonna, your, your child was gonna be born with special needs. And, and parents of special needs children will tell you all over the place how, what a gift they are. But can I tell you what the divorce rate is of parents with special needs children? It's like 70 plus percent. You had no idea. So sometimes you can, you can put everything into place, but still you can't forecast everything that's going to happen in your life. You didn't know that when you said, I did, I do at the, the wedding altar the marriage altar that, you know, that business that you just were going to start, that you knew God was in it, that in a few months it was going to go bankrupt. The kind of pressure and weight that that does to a, a relationship. There is nothing like marriage. Are you with me? That, that learns how to separate the, the real you from the fake you. Like you didn't know when you said, I do, that that, you know, cute little craft beer hobby that he had was really the start of alcoholism. You thought it was cute and you thought that was neat that he makes his own beer or whatever, but that was the start of something else. And I, I just wonder sometimes how many Christians there are with a craft beer hobby. Come on, somebody. Like you didn't know that. But then you, you got, got married and the pressures got greater and the mortgage got greater and there were more kids added to it. And now that craft beer hobby has turned into too many a night that you can't do without, right? That's just a weight and that's just a pressure that none of us can see coming. But marriage has this way of, of revealing and separating the real you from the fake you. And going through these trials and, and pressures together, this is marriage. This is relationships, is it not? And we get put through these times of testing and trials, but listen to the word of God. In James chapter one, it says this, but consider it pure joy. Brothers and sisters, husbands, wives, fathers, sons, 
whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing, the, the crushing, the, the pressure of your faith produces perseverance. And that has to finish its work so that you may be made mature, incomplete, not lacking anything. That has to finish its work so that we can separate the chaff from the grain, the good stuff, the pure grain, the pure relationship, the pure marriage that God wants you to have. See, there's something that, that, that seasons of prosperity will never do that only difficulty can do to separate the real you from the fake you. That's good, Pastor Colby. Say that again. Okay, I will. There's something that seasons of no problems. And if you're there right now, man, that's awesome. God bless you. We celebrate with you that you're in a season where everything is good. Everything's up and to the right. But there's something that only difficulty can do. And some of you know that all too well. Some of you are feeling that even here today. Maybe you're here by yourself. There's something that only difficulty can do to separate the real you from the fake you, to only prepare you for the, the purest version of you, that God wants to get rid of the chaff. God wants to get rid of the, the tears, the irredeemable parts of our lives to get us to its purest form that only, only comes as we go through trouble and suffering. And can I tell you something? That wasn't God's plan from the beginning. Don't hear me wrong. That's not God's plan A for the world. He never designed it that way. That you and I would go through, through that stuff, right? The, the human suffering wasn't on the card when he created the world. But now, right here we are, sin has entered into the picture and until one day when he ultimately finally destroys sin in its fullest, fullest measure, like we're gonna go through trials. We're gonna go through testing. We're gonna go through, through troubles. And I don't, you know, theologically believe one bit that God is the author of suffering. Like, I don't know, I don't know about you and what you believe. Like, I have these questions the same as you. Well, how can a good God do this? How can a good God allow this evil in the world and war and all? I'm, I'm wrestling with the same things. God is not the author of those things, but he is the chief user of those things. And God has the ability to take something that is, that is broken and being crushed and ultimately pulling the best out of it. And that's what he wants to do in your life. That's what he wants to do in our marriages and our relationships. I'm gonna pull something beautiful, he says, out of the middle of something painful. And so when you're feeling the pressure, when you're feeling the pressure, the weight, the, the crushing, like that ox to the wheat, just know this. And on the other side of it, that can be a beautiful breaking to get to the best parts that God has for your life and the best that he has for your relationship. And I just wanted to come and tell somebody today that is going through a season of threshing in their life. Listen, sometimes to, to get that stuff broken off of you, see, while that can be painful, the whole breaking, you know what can be wonderful is when it's finally broken off of your life and you're operating in the purest form and the blessings and the purposes of God. And so can we, can we do this? Would you guys all stand to your feet with every head up and every eye open? Again, because we're family here. And we don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to feel guilty. You know what, Jesus died on the cross so that we didn't have to carry that with us anyway. But all we're trying to do is get better at this whole thing. Does anybody wanna get better at relationships? Okay, that's, we wanna get better. 
let me say this with every head up and every eye open if you are in a threshing floor season of your life right now in your relationships would you just throw your hand up so you're not alone and I don't know what's going on and I don't know what's happening in your lives right now but God does God loves you And God knows that if you can get through this threshing season in your life, that what it's going to produce on the other side is going to be unbelievable. That God has the best in mind for you. So what I want to do is I want to pray for you. God, I pray right now for those people that would say, I am in a season, God, of pressure and crushing. And I'm desperate for you to move in my life. But I want to, right now, God, understand that it could be It's just separating out the parts of me that are of no use, of no value to get ultimately to the purest form of who you've created me to be. And so God, I pray that for marriages in this room right now that are struggling, that seem like they're just going around and around and around and there's pressure and there's stress and there's crushing and it doesn't seem like they're even getting to that that winnowing season of, of throwing the grain up and letting it start to separate God, but I just pray for for courage. I pray for bravery and strength in the middle of that season. God, I pray for perseverance, for it to finish its work inside of them, God, so they can present themselves pure and mature and not lacking anything that you have for them, God. God, we pray that you would strengthen marriages in this house. We pray that you would strengthen relationships in this house, God that this would be a, a month that are, are, is just tempered with, with miracles and restoration and redemption. And so God, we ask for a miracle to happen. Maybe there are people in this room that are just on the verge of, of leaving or have left, have walked out on their spouse. God, I just pray that if anything, it just draws us to our knees to say, we just wanna get better. That you're not moving the standard what you've called us to do and how you've called us to to treat our wives and love our wives and lay our lives down for our wives as Christ did for the church. You're not moving that standard. What you're doing is moving hearts right now. And so God, would you once again just, just have us bow a humble knee to what your word says and we understand it's the best way for us to live. And with every head bowed, every eye closed, maybe you're here today and you need to understand that this, this canap, this covering that Boaz provided for Ruth is a picture of the covering that Jesus provides for you. When we talk about protection and provision and promotion, that Jesus is a picture of that covering for our lives. When he went to the cross to sacrifice his life for us and die on the cross for our sins, the Bible says that that when we believe in him and believe that that he took on our punishment that we deserved and that he went to the cross and he died and, and paid the ultimate price and was a sacrifice for us. But when he came back to life, conquering sin and death, the moment we confess him as Lord, we receive that covering, that canap of Christ over our lives. And that when God looks at us, you know what he doesn't see? Shame. He doesn't see guilt. He doesn't see mistakes. He doesn't see our sin. What he sees is his son. 
and the covering that he provides. And some of you, that's why you're here. You've never allowed Jesus to be the covering over your life, but maybe for the first time, your eyes are open that he gave his life to be your covering. If you'd say, Colby, I wanna receive that covering of Christ into my life. Would you right now be so bold and throw your hand up? Say, I wanna receive Jesus as my covering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God bless you. Just keep it up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Come on, 15. I see you. God bless you. God bless you. We celebrate the decision that you're making right now. In fact, the Bible says as we confess Jesus as Lord, and we believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we'd be saved. So let's do that together. Church, let's pray this with them. Let's help them out. Jesus, today, come on, Jesus, today, I give you my life. Be my covering. Forgive my sin. I believe that you died on the cross and rose again to save me and set me free. In Jesus' name, come on, amen, amen. Come on, let's celebrate, let's worship. Thanks for checking out this week's message on the Elevate Church podcast, and we hope you really enjoyed it. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations, welcome to the family. We would love to know about it, so please let us know by going to elevatechurch.com slash yes. There'll be some practical resources that will help you as you start this journey. If you want to support the mission and vision of Elevate Church to help people far from God reach their full potential in Christ, go to elevatechurch.com slash give. We'll see you soon. Have a great week.